Well, I don't have a whole lot of time to like give a, a real big introduction this morning, because as, as I looked at this passage throughout the past few weeks, there's been books like written on it. Just these three or four verses, like not just like a little pamphlet like we have outside that are free, um, if you want one out there, those are free right there at the welcome desk, but textbooks are written about this. Um, one theologian wrote, these four verses provide the key to interpreting the Sermon on the Mount, but also in many ways the key to understanding Jesus' inauguration of the kingdom, and by extension, the understanding of Matthew's purpose for writing his gospel. So we're going to jump right in. So first I'm going to um, kind of take a, a little view of Matthew's gospel, and then kind of take a greater view of the Bible, and then we'll own in on this passage. Um, and in Matthew's gospel, there's this direct connection to what I would call the book of Moses, or the books of Moses. And what are the books of Moses? What's well, the Pentateuch, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. Um, it's funny, I, a couple years ago, I was in St. Louis at an extravagant party. I started talking to this guy um, at the side of the party, and uh, he, he went to a, a liberal church who does not believe the Bible's true. Um, and he said, well, Derek, like, I don't believe Noah wrote, just wrote him. You know, the Bible. I said, well, I don't either, because Moses wrote him. You know, you, we have that in common. So, so I, I call them the books of Moses, because as we look at Matthew's gospel, what we see is Moses. When we look at Matthew's gospel, um, He's saying something without saying something. And husbands know that to be true, like that that can happen because of those famous words, I'm fine. Like there's a lot being said there that isn't being said. So we know that that can be true. Um, and in the, in the beginning of Matthew's gospel, he starts with a genealogy, and we went through that. But, but to the Jewish audience, what then that would look like is the beginning of the Bible. Because in Genesis, we see all kinds of genealogies. And what, what that would remind the Jewish audience then, and I would, I would kind of compare it to, okay, so if a movie starts and you start to see those scrolling words that scroll away from you, you would say, oh, that's Star Wars, right? You'd recognize it, or at least people who have seen Star Wars. So you would recognize ah, this is a Star Wars movie. And in the same way we would recognize that, a Jewish audience would then recognize, ah, this has, this, has our, this, is, this has our roots in here. This has something to do with us. And, and Matthew gives this flow. And, but what Matt, So in the same way, in Genesis, God creates the world. He creates man. Man falls. In Matthew, God shows the genealogy, it's all connected to the promises he's given. And he creates a baby. He creates a baby that's not like any other babies. He creates a baby with a new daddy. He creates a baby that's going to inaugurate the new kingdom. Because we're all born under Adam. And there's only one thing that can come with that. And that's death. And what Matthew's saying is, 
There's a new kingdom here. And he's saying it loud. Like this kingdom is here, and if you're not a part of it, you're going to die. And he then goes to show the covenants. He shows the Abrahamic covenant. He promised them the promised land, a seed that would fulfill it. He shows the Davidic covenant, and that's in the genealogy, that it's going to be in line with David. He's going to set up a kingship of a kingdom. But he leaves out one covenant. And where's, where's the covenant at Sinai? What does this have to do with it? Like, that's left out. Those are the three main covenants in the Old Testament. Why doesn't Matthew show us that? Well, he does. And what Jesus is doing here in the Sermon on the Mount is the same thing. Well, not the same thing, but similar to that of Moses when Moses went up on the mountain. So I'm going to go back to Deuteronomy chapter 15 and read this to you. It's a promise from God. Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 through 19. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me among you. That's Moses. You, from your brothers, it is to him you shall listen. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, now God speaking, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. So in the same way in Moses' life, you see, Moses was born and then placed into a royal family. Jesus was born king. He was born royal. He's the greater prophet of Moses. In the same way God calls through Moses Egypt, he calls his people out of Egypt. In a similar way, through Jesus, God is calling his people out of slavery and sin. And see, Moses went up on a mountain and received the words from God. Jesus went up on a mountain and gave the words as God. So what we see here is the final fulfillment of that Sinaitic covenant. Fancy word. The stuff that God told Moses on Mount Sinai finds their fulfillment in front of a few disciples. Like, let that just weigh on us for a second. Like, in front of a couple handfuls of disciples, God gave the most important words. Like, we, we, also, we often think that we need to go and do more, do big, do great things for God, which is good. We should. But don't ever realize the importance of the doing the little things for God in front of a couple people in front of no one, like, make no mistake about it, in the everyday mundane task that we have, we can glorify God in the same way as the Billy Graham Crusades. Like, don't let us miss that. So, as we viewed out, let's go back in. Let's go into, let's see, Matthew chapter 5. And I want to show you the flow of this Sermon on the Mount. If you notice, in the, in the beginning, the Beatitudes start with theirs, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs, they, 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 
So it kind of, it's a little impersonal. And then it starts to move a little more personal. When he says, blessed are you, in verse 11, when, you, when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you. He says, you are the salt, you are the light. You and your, and then it comes to verse 17 and he gets real personal. And he says, I. And what this is saying, Jesus is now saying that he's the center of attention. And I'm not talking about like in an impersonal way. I'm talking about in the grand scheme of the cosmos, in the grand scheme of all of our lives, in the grand scheme of human history. I'm saying Jesus is making that claim. I'm saying that not only is it found in this chapter, but it's found in all of life that it centers on Jesus. Look with me in verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Nay, I have come to, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So here's where we get into like a lot of the, we've got to, we've got to, work through this. So one of the things that, that Robert Banks, um, a theologian, quoted, and I like what he says, he says, for Matthew then, it is not the question of Jesus's relation to the law. It's the law's relationship to Jesus. So there's been three major ways in uh, throughout church history, Christian history, history that this is seen. Um, and I think there's a little bit of each of them in here. Um, and those three ways are, it may mean that he would do all things laid down in Scripture. It may mean that he would bring out the full meaning of Scripture. And it may mean that in his life and teaching, he would bring Scripture to its completion. And I agree with all those. Because Jesus fulfilled the law. He, he did everything in accordance never disobeyed God. Therefore, he's our great high priest. The, the law that was given to Moses now finds its completeness in the Sermon on the Mount and in his life, death, burial, resurrection, Scripture finds it's complete. So, what we can often do then, and I agree with this, we can often take the law and divide it into civil, ceremonial, and moral. And I agree with that. You'll find that taught here. Um, you'll find that widely taught everywhere um, since like Thomas Aquinas in the 1200s. But before we go, that would be like C. So we just went from Jesus is the fulfillment as A, and we don't want to skip B. If we went to just dividing the law, we would go to C. So I want to say Jesus right here is actually telling us about B, even though C is true. Does that make sense? Well, let me, let me tell you first. So, D.A. Carson says, the best interpretation of this passage, and I agree with him, um, of these difficult verses says that Jesus fulfills the law and the prophets in that they point to him. He is their fulfillment. And by law and prophets, all the Old Testament. You can just throw it all in there. And he says the antithesis or like the, the opposing arguments he makes here is not, we would often just 
quickly say abolish and keep and move on. But what Jesus is saying is abolish and fulfill. Those are two opposites. He's saying he didn't come to abolish it. He came to fulfill it. And what does that mean? Well, it's easy to see how the the prophecies are fulfilled, right? Um, If we look back in Matthew, this is a huge, huge thing going on. First chapter, behold, the virgin shall conceive to fulfill what had been spoken by the prophet. Chapter 2, I mean, for so it was written by the prophet. Then it was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. Chapter 4, it is written. So we can see, it's a little easier to see how the prophecies now are fulfilled in Jesus because he's the guy that they're all talking about. He, he's the seed from Abraham. He's the Passover lamb. He is the promised land. He is the Davidic, in the line of the Davidic king, in the line of David. But what we don't often see is that he's the fulfillment of the law. And what do I mean by that? And I think one of, the, one of the easiest ways that I could say that is, say, thousands of years ago, there was an 80-year-old Jewish guy that came to the Day of Atonement, which is prescribed in the law. You know, these are the ceremonies that you must do and do it like this. And they would put a rope around him, put a rope around the high priest when he went into the holiest of holies, um, just in case he died. But the 80-year-old sitting there at the Day of Atonement, had to be looking then at his son or daughter, at their son or daughter, at their son or daughter, and saying, okay, but when do these days come to an end? When, when's there ever going to come a, a lamb great enough where we don't have to do this anymore? The law then is fulfilled in such a way. And if, you're, if, you, if you like college football, you would then understand um, because everyone's always all the time trying to say, this is the greatest college team of all time. We're, we're looking for that naturally. Out of every year, when will this finally be decided? So the law points to him in such a way where it's not direct, just how Matthew is telling us here. And Jesus ultimately fulfills that law by bringing in the new covenant. And the new covenant was prophesied in Jeremiah. And here's what it says. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And it goes on. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. So just as Moses went up on the mountain and got the tablets from God written down on stone, now God is saying he's going to take those tablets and put them within us. So let's work that out. But back to, I will put the, and I will write on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. 
if you could see how our passage is then moving there. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So why do we center our gatherings, our lives, our hope, our faith on Jesus? Because God says to do it, and that's enough. And I know we, we all will struggle with that wrestle because God says so. And no doubt about it, there are reasons for many things, and apologetics is a great way of working that out, but God says so is enough. And Jesus affirms that in the next verse. For truly, I say in verse 18, Jesus affirms the authority and the sufficiency of Scripture. He says, For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So Jesus then goes back, affirms the Old Testament. And this is important to us right now in our day because the attack is just like the attack um, that, that young people you'll experience where people will say stuff like, man, that's so archaic. Scripture just, it's such a weight. Like, it, it's not cool. Like, what, what, what our society is now saying is, if you have a desire, well, that's great. Desires are holy. Go fulfill them. But what Scripture teaches is all your desires need to come underneath the authority of Christ. And if you really want to live life to its fullness, if you want to get pure joy, well, then it needs to come under the authority of Christ. And you start to live in such a way that, that seems counterproductive, and that goes back to Matthew 5, verse 2. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Scripture is archaic. And actually, this is just kind of a, a side note for free. Um, we often think that we can't relate to Scripture. Like, oh, I don't get how this pertains to me. But if you look at Matthew ch chapter 19, uh, Jesus is um, confronted by the, the scribes and the Pharisees, and they say, well, what are your thoughts on divorce? And to summarize it, he goes, well, the only way out of a divorce is through sexual immorality. God gave you these laws through Moses because you guys got hard hearts. And their response is, why in the world would we get married if we couldn't get out of it? But it, it does. Scripture does impact our daily lives. And in marriage, the only way that we're going to make it through marriage is both coming underneath the authority of Christ. But where was I? Jesus affirms the full authority of Scripture. Just as Paul says in 2 Timothy, he's writing to Timothy, a, a young pastor, he says, all of Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God be made complete and equipped for every good work. Close the Bible, move on to the next point. But, but seriously, though, um, this is something... Um, the authority of the Word of God is something we're all going to wrestle with. So if you walked in here wrestling with um, obedience, if you walk in here wrestling with something in your life that you know is not in accordance with the Word of God, join the club, okay? 
join the club, let's repent of our sins, and let's move on. Sure, it's going to take multiple times probably. But join us. And like I said before, Jesus is, is affirming the authority of the Old Testament, but in certain ways now, it's not like the law is going to be fulfilled and it would come to a completion and end. What way is that? Um, let's say the blood sacrifices, what we've talked about, they've ceased. Why? Hebrews 9, chapter, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12. He entered once for all into the holy places, that is Jesus, not by means of blood and goats or calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. So therefore what was celebrated in Israel as the Passover, now differently but in the same way we look back in remembrance as they did through the Lord's Supper. Um, in Israel there were, there were priests, but, but now the church is a priesthood. Hebrews chapter 7, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently, Jesus, because he continues forever. So there are no more priests. In the physical temple, there was a physical temple where everyone um, in Israel went to worship God, and Jesus, that ceased, because Jesus now is the place. Jesus now is the tent. Jesus now is the temple where we meet God. Just as he prophesied in John 2, he said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And he was speaking about the temple of his body. Jesus in John 4, Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither of us on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will, worship the will you worship the Father. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. And lastly, I'm just throwing this in there as examples. This is not a complete encompassing thing. The food laws. Israel couldn't eat pork. And Jesus said in Matthew 7, or Mark 7, Jesus said to them, do, not, do you not see whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him? Thus he declared all foods clean. So, what we see is it centers on Jesus. Jesus then has fulfilled the law, which everything from before pointed to him. Now what then do we do? Which leads us to verse 19. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of these, who relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus then commands his disciples, to obey God's word and show others to do the same. And Jesus continues, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So the law in itself pointed forward to Jesus in multiple ways. It pointed forward to Jesus himself. It also pointed forward to the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount. So, it is then properly obeyed by conforming our lives to Jesus' teaching. And thus, the ranking in the kingdom of God turns into our degree of conformity to Jesus' teaching. It then fulfills Old Testament revelation 
by as we conform to Jesus' teaching, we become greater in the kingdom of God. But also humble, more humble. So, his teaching must be obeyed. And this is not legalism. Um, it's the bookends of Matthew. There's, there's themes of Matthew's in Matthew's gospel, a fulfillment of kingdom of God, and another one is obedience. Um, I'm going to just point to the bookends of Matthew to show this. Um, at the beginning of Matthew, uh, we, if you remember, Jesus was to be born from a virgin, and Joseph was like, all right, we haven't been together in a room alone, Mary. Um, I'm going to leave you be and go marry somebody else. But God comes to him, to him in a dream and tells him, no, she's, she's got my son in him. And what did Joseph then do after the word of Christ came to him? Joseph obeyed. He did what he was told. And then in the end of Matthew's gospel, when Jesus then gives out the greatest, great commission he tells them, do this, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Go forth and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, or in ways that like the, another, teaching them to obey. Another translation might interpret it. Teaching them to obey. And what we see in our obedience then it's one way of trusting God. It's one way of believing God. Paul describes the struggle of obedience in Romans chapter 7. For I do not understand my own actions. Man, you don't have to show your hands, but I know everyone could like understand that one. Man, I, and Paul says, I do, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Now if I do what I do not want to do, I agree with the law. That is good. Man, that's confusing. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So if Paul disapproves of his own actions that are not holy, he's saying he is agreeing with the law. And then, so, so all of this, then how can we simplify what Jesus is saying? We've taken these broad themes, these broad truths, these broad um, views, Derek, I need something I can walk away with tomorrow and apply it to my life. And um, I'm going to steal from Matthew chapter 7, and Jesus gives us the golden rule. Matthew chapter 7, verse 12. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and prophets. It's the simplest obedience, but it can be rather hard. It can be rather hard with hard people like myself, with stupid people like myself. So as we come under the obedience of God's word, what we then see is Moses went on the mountain to then get the tablets of God's word and bring them down to the people to share and tell them. 
Jesus then goes up on the mountain and tells them the words as God. And thus, when the Spirit comes after Jesus ascends, the Spirit then writes those words on our hearts. And if, if you're not there where you're, you're wanting to follow God, stay in obedience. Like if, if you're not there where the law is a delight, if you're not there where, man, where, where you're thinking pure thoughts, if you're, if you're not there in the, the kingdom that is described in the Beatitudes, the people who are described um, keep coming to Jesus and his words. Why? Why would I say that? Because blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And why is it true? Because Jesus says so. And lastly, um, to finish, I'm actually, I've got, like, I prepared a little, um, this is the first time I've ever done this, I'm preparing a little uh, demonstration, I guess, if you would. So bear with me. Um, Jesus then, in verse 20, he says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, like you, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. And he says that because it's important because there's wrong ways of viewing Jesus' commands. One example is in Luke 18, where we see two men. Actually, if you would, let's turn to Luke 18. Luke 18, verses 10 through 14. Two men are portrayed. It says, Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like the tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, rather than the other. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And this is um, an imperfect example of what I'm trying to say here, is that we, um, this is our glass that we're going to present to God and ask him to fill. And it's got some stains on it. And that's enough. So what the Pharisee then is saying is he's cleaning himself up by his works of the law. 
These ain't bad things. But he's cleaned himself up by his works of the law. So here's the Pharisee, what he's doing. He's cleaning the outside of his glass, making it nice and pretty. Saying, look at that. Actually, I did not clean that. Okay, now the outside is clean. He's cleaning the outside of his glass and presenting it to God. Saying, God, thank you for a clean glass of all that I've done. Thank you for, he didn't even say thank you for helping me. But then, what we see here, and and I'm going to quote Psalm 51. And this is what David says. After David had committed a, a grievous sin, he comes to God. And we see a formula laid forth by David on how to become righteous. David says in Psalm 51, verse 16 through 17, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And I want to shout that in your soul. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Why? Because the righteousness of God comes through repentance. And what repentance does is it takes this cup, it cleans the inside. Because when Jesus showed up on the scene in chapter 4, he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So how do we get right with God? How do we become more righteous than the Pharisees? We acknowledge our sin. We ask God to forgive us. We trust him that he will, and we walk in obedience. So if that's you today, like if, if you've been walking in disobedience, like, and you want to, you're hungering and thirsting for God, like that's not any of us telling you things, like that's the Spirit of God beckoning you to come into the kingdom of God. It's the Spirit of God beckoning you to humble yourself. Because how can you be made right with God? How can you obtain a righteousness greater than the Pharisees? By repenting of your sins and trusting in the lawgiver, Jesus Christ. So I'm going to pray. And we'll enter into a time of, of worship But if God's beckoning on your heart to come, come. If you're already in the kingdom of heaven, you too can experience the wrestle that Paul described of disobedience. It's good to have others pray over us. Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your law. Thank you for confronting us in our sin and not letting us 
walk away. Like, oh God, please do not let us walk away. Please do not let us discount our sin and say, oh, it's just a couple sins. Like, that's not that big of a deal. God, show us that that any righteousness we have is filthy rags in front of your son, Jesus. We ask that you would lead us into the life, lead us into Jesus, conform us to Jesus, and we count it all joy. In Jesus' name, amen.